You're listening to Calvary La Habra's podcast. For more information, visit us at calvarylh.com. Thanks for listening. All right, well, let's turn our Bibles over to Acts chapter 9. The conversion of conversions. The one man that most of us in the early church would have known about, he was known as the guy that was hunting us down. He was known as the guy that quite possibly had taken out some of our relatives, some of our friends. He was a renowned Pharisee, a known Pharisee that had credentials. He had clout. If there were any young men running around Jerusalem who said, I want to be a Pharisee, and they looked at the model of the Pharisee, it would be this man by the name of Saul. And this man, Saul, was the kind of guy that was so about himself, self-righteous. If you asked him, who do you think is the most righteous person in, in Jerusalem? Before you would get the, the, the statement finished, he would be like, you're looking at it. And he was so supportive of the movement that he was incarcerating and murdering these people that were part of a movement called the Way, and it was the church. And he felt that they were a threat. And the establishment of Judaism also thought it was a threat. It wasn't too long ago that they had put this man, Jesus, from Nazareth on a cross and crucified him. And then they had went to the governor of that area, a Roman by the name of Pilate, and, and had him kind of work with them to pay these guards that had watched the tomb of Jesus to tell everybody to spread rumors and lies around town. Now, that wouldn't work today. I know rumors and lies don't catch much life today. But in those days, man, that... That just took off. It hit social media, and it just flew. Every commentator in mainstream media bought it and said, the disciples came and stole the body of Jesus. And that was the sentiment throughout Jerusalem. Problem. Jesus walked on the earth for 40 days following his resurrection. And many people saw him. And this guy saw was out to put an end to that. If we were part of the early church and we, we, got, we gathered and we said, let's talk about this man, we might even find a, a majority vote in this room by a show of hands. How many of you believe Paul could, Saul could ever be saved? Not many hands would go up. How many would say he should be saved? Not many hands would go up. And we go there sometimes in our our flesh. I, I think as you begin to grow in your understanding of God, you realize that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. But there are times in my life, and I must admit, where I'm like, I don't want that person in heaven, and I'm not so sure God does. <laughs> I was riding with someone in my car, and I was trying to, to weasel in on a freeway that was just stopped. And, and the, the one car didn't let me in, the next car didn't let me in, and I kind of did the look over the shoulder, and I started to move in. And I was with a friend, and they just laid on the horn to where my ears just got red. And I sat there, and I'm like, and, and the person next to me is like, take it easy, man. We need to pray for them. I'm like, why? They'll never go into heaven. <laughs> How could they? No rude people will be there. And I've never been rude. But Saul, 13 books out of the New Testament that we read. Most of our doctrine is defined by this man that was inspired by God to pin down these words. The whole understanding of grace. Man, he's the guy. Understanding the reach of God's grace. 
This man, after he would be converted, would talk about that and he would say, as far as like sinners, I'm the most pitiful. This is, I'm the bottom of the barrel when it comes to showing how far God's grace can reach. We all have those people where we scratch our heads and we're like, I don't know. Saul, his conversion, challenges every time we think that thought. If you were to erase the conversion of Saul, you would have to to take a good, hard look at Rome and what God did through this man Saul, who would be later known as Paul. And you'd have to think about the, the, the gods of the pantheon that, that all of the Romans worshipped. And you would basically have to give Rome back to the gods of the pantheon. You would have to go to, to Ephesus, this city that Paul would go to on his first and second missionary journey. But as he would go, he would stay in that city longer than any other city, and he just would... Would, would preach the gospel. He would do what I'm doing right now. And so powerful was the ministry that God worked through this man, Saul, who would become Paul, that the economy itself of Ephesus was altered. You see, Ephesus was known by its worship, its pagan worship of a god by the name of Artemis. The Greek name would be, uh, uh, anyway, Artemis. And Diana would be the, 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 Artemis would be the Greek name. She would also be known by the Hebrews and Arabic as Artemis. And, and the, the, the goddess of Diana, we'll call her that, this pagan god, was so worshipped in Ephesus that, that, that the whole area of Ephesus, a large part of its commerce, its GDP each year, had to be tied to, or it was tied to, the temple and the worship of this pagan god. There would be a time when this man by the name of Demetrius, who was kind of the head of the silversmiths in that area, and he would gather all of the silversmiths in that area together and say, this guy Paul and his message, it's so radically changing the scope of our business that we are about to be shut down. You would have to take all of those conversions in Ephesus and throughout Rome, and then the downline of, of Paul's ministry as it would affect the church throughout the Roman Empire and, and just the, the, the development over the decades down to the centuries and erase countless, innumerable numbers of souls that have been saved. This is a conversion that we, we study, we are in awe of, we're... We're, we're, there, there's, there's great application from this. If this morning you're here and you're, you're not saved, what steps must happen in order for me to be saved? What's God's part? What's, what's my part? This man was wreaking havoc on the church. In chapter 8, the last time that we saw him, he was... He was standing outside of the city of Jerusalem and there were all of these, these people that had made up all of these false accusations about one of the servants in the early church. His name was Stephen and they were going to stone him and it was, it was the Jewish faith, it was the leadership consenting to that, and Paul, Saul, was the one that was standing there going, yeah, stone the guy. The last time we saw him, that's what was going on. And it simply said about him that he was 
going around and wreaking havoc, that he was going around and dragging Christians out of their house, binding them, incarcerating them, and murdering them. Paul, later on, after his conversion, he will talk about his conversion several times. He'll talk about it in Acts chapter 22 in front of this mob. And he'll give details about this event, this day. In Acts chapter 26, he'll be before King Agrippa, the king. And he'll give his, his testimony. As he writes the letter to the church in Philippi. He will give a, a great detailed account as to what he was, formerly was, and as to what he now is. This conversion was so radical, he could not stop talking about it. His conversion was so radical, it became part of the credentials. It's what commanded people's attention. It wasn't that he just, he just shared the gospel. No, he was a living, visible example of a life that the, alt, that the, that the gospel had altered. And he had no reservations in breaking that down, whether it was to a mob that wanted to kill him or whether it was to a king. He was like, you just need to know what Jesus did. So in verse 1, Saul, still breathing threats and, and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he goes to the high priest now and he asks letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, that was the first title ascribed to the church, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. There's a story about a man by the name of John Newton. We know him by the, the hymn that he penned down. Almost every funeral that we oversee or officiate, people like to sing this song, Amazing Grace. But this man was, a, as a young man, he, he was called to the sea, loved to be out on the ocean. He loved to be a sailor. As he was out working the seas as a sailor, he began to live the life of a sailor. He began to live a life of debauchery and immorality. He got involved in a trade, and the trade was of human beings. It was slaves. He would pick them up, and he would move them around. And with time, this John Newton would acquire his own slave ship. But while he would be on this slave ship that he owned, he would begin to read, and somebody gave him a copy of this Thomas Kempis's book, which is entitled... The Imitation of Christ. And it says that seeds were sown and he began to think deeply about who Christ is. And it was that in combination with a really gnarly storm that he was in one day that he got on his knees and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. He would go on to be this leader in the evangelical movement in the 18th century there in England, along with men like John and Charles Wesley and, and George Whitefield. And, and, and on his tombstone, after he would die, they inscribed the words that he himself penned down for his tombstone. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. And so it is with Saul. A conversion is about to take place. Conversion, again, that we can learn a lot from. This man who is wreaking havoc. In the Greek, that word describes someone that is like a, a wild animal just mangling its prey. 
persecuting Christians consumed him. It had taken hold of his life. The very air that he was breathing was all about murdering them and incarcerating them. He would say in Philippians chapter 3, when he's talking about who he was in contrast with what he would be, he would talk about his credentials. I was circumcised on the eighth day when I was supposed to be. I was of the stock of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he goes, concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, like how serious was I about my religion? I was persecuting the church. Yet in spite of all of this religious upbringing, in spite of all of this, this man that would have probably known the Old Testament and, and, and probably the first part, the first five books, the Torah by heart, he had missed the Messiah. But the Messiah had not missed him. We talked about the book of Acts being broken up in sections, and the sections are more geographically focused. The church, the birthing of the church, what the Holy Spirit does to birth the church begins in Jerusalem, but then it would go to Judea and Samaria and, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And now we transition with, with beyond Jerusalem and Judea going towards Samaria, and in those regions there'll be different kinds of Jews that the gospel will reach first. And then it's going to go to, to Gentiles. And a lot of these people, you're going to have some like Jesus in his inner circle that were Hebrews that would have spoke primarily Aramaic, would have understood Greek, but they would have spoke Aramaic. And then you would have had a lot of Jews that were influenced by the, the Greek culture, and they would have been Hebrews that spoke Hebrew, and they would have spoke Greek. And, and many of them living in certain concentrated areas, such as Samaria we talked about, actually intermarried, and they were, they were called uh, Hellenists. And so here is God wanting to reach the, the next demographic, the next beyond Jerusalem, and there are going to be people that are, are really steeped in Judaism, speak Hebrew, speak Aramaic, and many of them are going to be steeped in the Greek culture and they speak Greek. And so God looks around and he's like, okay, it would be really good to find an instrument that could reach all of that. I know. Here's a guy who was raised in Tar born and raised in Tarsus. Raised in the Greek culture. Ate Greek food. Dressed Greek. Talked Greek. Thought Greek. Would have, would have even known about the Greek gods. And seen all of his friends cave in to idolatry tied to the Greek gods. But at the age of 14, there would be a segue in his life. He would find himself going to a rabbinical school, and he would find himself sitting at the feet of the most renowned rabbi of his day, a man by the name of Gamaliel. This man, who now is persecuting the church. This man that all of us would probably say there's no day that he will get saved. God looks at it and says, no, no, no. This is the day he will be saved. Damascus, 150 miles away from Jerusalem. As we, on our tours, go from the north to the south, we'll drive along the Jordan River and we'll get to an area uh, probably about, I don't know, 40 miles away from Jerusalem and, and it's the Damascus Road and we'll kind of point and we'll point towards Syria, which it's in Syria, and we'll say somewhere along here the apostle Paul, who was then Saul, was on a horse with some of his buddies and he was, he was going over to this very large city by the name of Damascus, which had in that day, historians tell us, between 30 and 40 synagogues. And he had went to the high priest to get letters so he could pass through the different borders and say, I'm credentialed by the high priest to kill these guys. And I like stopping right there and kind of getting out of the bus and going, 
somewhere around here, one of the greatest conversions took place. Saul. It's midday, but he's on his horse, and the hunt is not over. In the middle of the day, in the Middle Eastern culture, they would have the equivalent of what Latin America does today, where they would have their siestas. In the middle of the day, it's going to shut down shop. Not Saul. He's on the move. As he journeyed in verse 3, he came near Damascus, this murderer, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord spoke to him. Arise and go into the city. Damascus, you're almost there. And there you're going to be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless and, and hearing a voice, but they didn't see Jesus. There's a four points, four kind of steps I want to bring our attention to. And I think for us that are saved, it should deepen our appreciation in what the Lord has done in saving us. And then for even the sake of, of sharing with people who have yet to give their life to Jesus, I think it's important to, to look at these steps and consider what needs to happen when it comes to conversion. And if you find yourself here this morning in this study or, or you're online listening to us and you're like, what is this whole salvation thing about? Pay attention to these steps. Really think through what, what God is doing to convert this man by the name of Saul. The first thing I see here is that he encounters the Lord. There's, there's, there's divine contact here. This isn't just something that we do in and of ourselves. It's not something like, I'm going to go over into a corner somewhere, and it's just me and my thoughts, and me and my convictions, and me and my beliefs. No, no, no. This is a divine work. God shows up. God's part of this. And, and as we saw in the conversion in chapter 8 of that Ethiopian eunuch, we talked about the sovereignty of God, that, that, that God was working in the circumstances on behalf of this eunuch that was not saved, but was seeking God. That's why he had went to Jerusalem. But now he's, he's in the desert. He's on this road heading either away from Jerusalem towards Gaza, and, and there's this other man, young man, by the name of Philip, who's in Samaria. And as you remember, the Lord was doing that crazy work. And the Lord's like, I want you to go now. And I want you to go to no man's land, to the road that nobody goes on, and just go. And all of us who are saved, we have the sovereignty of God to reflect upon, some of us maybe can see prior to our conversion how the Lord was orchestrating events in our life to bring us to him. Or maybe as a younger man, as myself, I don't recall all of those details. But one day we'll get to heaven and I'm sure we're going to go, God was using you and God was using you and God was using these circumstances. And that's the sovereign work of God on our behalf. If you're not saved here, just know God loves you. He, he's like, just absolutely wants to save you, absolutely wants to convert you. And as much as you might be seeking him, he's seeking you out. 
And, and you might be one of those people where you've allowed the enemy to convince you of the lies, like you're too far gone, or you're too far out there, or you, you don't know what I've done. Open your heart and trust God for who he is this morning. Just, just believe that there is no, no one that is beyond the reach of his love, no one that is beyond the reach of his grace. And that's what is pictured here in this conversion. So around noon, Saul is heading to Damascus. This bright light beams down. It's recorded in the middle of the day, so it's brighter than the middle of the day light. It beams down from heaven. Saul's knocked off of his horse. His friends all fall down. This is a man that if if you were to describe him, you would probably say Saul's a very self-righteous guy. If you were to describe him as a Jew practicing Judaism, you would say this is a very accomplished guy. He's a very intelligent guy. Here's a guy that is at the top of his game. The best of what religion can produce. But now... Encountering the presence of his God. The glory of Christ. The presence of Christ. He's on his back. He's looking up. And isn't that just the way it is when we come into the presence of Christ? It just kind of levels the playing field. And the questions begin to swirl around. Saul would later become Paul and he would, he would talk about his conversion with great conviction. He heard his name twice. Jesus said his name twice. When I was living with my parents up until I was 17, I believe it was, whenever my parents... Whenever I wasn't in trouble, it was Lance. When I was in trouble, Lance, Lance. They wanted to get my attention. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I like this question. You know, who are you, Lord? He, the, the one in front of him, who are you, Lord? He, he now is faced with the reality that Jesus is alive. In verse 17, we won't get there today. He will end up in Damascus. And God is going to send this man by the name of Ananias to, to go. And he's got a message for, for Saul. I'm not going to get ahead of it. But he says, as Paul or Saul will be in his house, he goes, hey, hey Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. This indicates he really saw Jesus. When later on, Paul will write about the resurrection of Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he'll talk about the resurrection and then he'll talk about those that have seen him. And he'll, he'll, he'll talk about, you know, up to 500 at once. Peter saw him, the apostles saw him, and, and James then saw him. And then last of all, he was seen by me also, Paul will say, as by one born out of due time. It's no wonder. He talked about his conversion a lot. It's, it's no wonder he... He had encountered Jesus in such a personal, powerful, life-changing way. Over and over, he will present the, the, the vision, that part in his testimony, as, as kind of like his apostolic credentials. Everything in his life had opposed this, but now he, he knew that Christ was alive. 
And if Christ were alive, oh, he's a trembling now. Additionally, when Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Saul now knew he was not merely attacking those belonging to the way. He was attacking Christ himself. He, he now was faced with the, the, the spiritual unity between the Savior and his saints. This, this reflects the inseparable link between Jesus as the head of the body and its members that make up the body, you and I. And a blow struck on the bride down here on earth is felt by the groom in heaven. He's trembling before the Lord. What does that tell you? He was radically convicted. This was like the midnight of his soul. There are times that I've just had the privilege of sharing with people and, and just probably from my teens forward, I've always had an opportunity to share with people about my faith, more so in my 20s. And over the years, there'll be times when, when people are just curious about Christianity and, and obviously, I'm trying to bring it around to Jesus if they don't know the Lord. And I've had my fair share of people that as I begin to explain to them the gospel and, and you know, what it says in Romans about we're all sinners and that there's a wage to sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I've been amazed sometimes when I'm looking at people that are just, they're blinded and there's the truth and I believe God's got us there like to kind of, you know, we need some trembling right now, you know, before God. And, 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 it, and it's not there. You've seen that. But for you that are really thinking through conversion, I want you to see how important it is. This is a biblical account of what takes place before there is conversion, there is real heartfelt conviction. You've got to get to a place of realizing, man, I have been wrong about Jesus. How was, how was Saul wrong about Jesus? He kept rejecting him and rejecting him and rejecting him. He refused to believe that he was who Jesus said he was. Just refused to believe it. And did everything to stop those who did. And there just comes a time in all of our life. This is not religion. If, if, when, when God sent Jesus down here to take on flesh, it wasn't like, let's go start another religion. There's plenty of religion on the world. What we see pictured here is God... In flesh, the Son of God stepping into the day of, the worst, offering him relationship. Offering this gift that would alter his life. But, but, but Saul, in his heart, in his mind, he needed to agree. That's what confession is all about. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess... Our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To, that word confess means to agree, to agree with God. We are all born sinners with sinful nature, and it's our sin that separates us from God. And God never put the responsibility on any of us to deal with that sin. He put it on his son. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. And that's why Jesus is pursuing Saul. He needed to realize he was a sinner and that he had sinned against God. A humbling conviction of sinning against Jesus is a necessary step towards conversion. Listen, those who will go to hell, they do so ultimately because of their rejection of Jesus. Jesus said in John 16, 9, 
The Holy Spirit would convict men concerning sin because they do not believe in me. And so the crime of all crimes for which men will be eternally damned is to refuse the love of Christ. To refuse his gift of salvation. To refuse his forgiveness. Saul knew enough about Christianity and the movement to hate it. He knew enough about it to persecute it. He knew the claims of Jesus and the the, the true history of God's redemption. He knew it through the Old Testament. He just didn't tie those scriptures to Jesus. But just a few days earlier in Acts chapter 6, young Stephen, before they stoned him, and, and Saul was standing right here, Stephen connected all of those dots to Jesus. He knew. The Spirit had laid the groundwork in Saul's life. So when Jesus made contact with Saul, the conviction must have been overwhelming. He knew about the truth. Now he was on his back, convicted at a point where he's beginning to believe the truth. So who are you, Lord? A a recognition of, of deity. It shows that he knew that it was the Lord that was reaching out to him. There are many people that accept the Lord today and and, and we, we talk to them, like, when did this all begin? And they'll, they'll tell you about circumstances in their life and how someone shared the gospel or they, they heard a song or whatever it would be. And it was like the hound of heaven. They knew that God was, was on them and, and the Spirit began to convict them. And they, they just knew. I, I, we, Lori and I, before we were married, we dated for a two and a half, three years. And, you know, when I first met her at a gas station... She saw me and thought I was hot and wanted my phone number, but it's the other way around. Just that, that week, she, she wasn't saved. And, and, and every one of our conversations, I was just like, I'm shaping surfboard, I need some rest. Just late night conversations on the phone. And she just wanted to know more, and she wanted to know more, and she wanted to know more. And so at the end of that week, I'm like, we're going to go out to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and and some guy gets up there and he's like, let's turn our Bibles over to the book of Revelation. I'm like, oh no, man, she's going to get blown away now. And, and, and this guy's just talking about the end times and breaking down the rapture and everything. Lori's just sitting there looking at me like, what are you believing here? You know, and, and I'm, I'm just, you know, tripping out on this whole thing. And, and what I didn't know is that all week the Lord had been convicting her and dots were being connected. And when she heard about the judgment of God, she didn't want that. She was convicted at the core of her soul. And so when the invitation was given, I kind of been around Calvary enough. I know you got to wait till at least the second song or something before you go up, you know. You don't be the first person up there. That means you're like the really bad guy, you know. <laughs> Here's Saul. <laughs> she jumped over me. Fwing, like a gazelle. Just fast walked down that from the, you know, I was in the back, you know, we don't want to get too close. Wham, all the way to the front. She was the first one there. She was convicted. There was no question in my mind when that girl turned around and we came back and the talks that we began to have that she realized that night she was wrong about Jesus. And now she was made it right. Amen. So, yes, amen. If Saul, before sitting in front of, standing in front of Stephen, wasn't all ears, there were times that Peter was before a council, the, the, the Sanhedrin. There's a good chance that Saul had seen Peter and John stand in front of the religious Supreme Court of Judaism and hear them share the gospel. There's no doubt if, if 
when, he, when, he, when he, he's talking to the mob and talking about his testimony later on, he would say he would go into houses and, and if they would not renounce Christ, he would drag them out and beat them, incarcerate them, bind them, and murder them. How many times did Paul, Saul, incarcerate, bind, beat, or murder someone who would not renounce Jesus Christ? And he saw the power of the resurrection on display. Unflinching faith and unflinching devotion and unflinching love, commitment. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. The goads are long stick that a farmer would use if he was plowing a field with a couple of oxen. And oxen, the ox decide they want to go to the right or the left, and he doesn't want them to. He'd stick them right behind their shoulder and just jab them. If they wanted to go to the left, you go to the other side and just jab them. I think that that is a, an awesome pause and consideration if you're not saved here this morning, here or online. How's it going? The Bible says... You might have your view on how's it going. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. Proverbs 15, 13. You can have all your friends rooting you on and patting you on the back until they wear you out and they're on to the next friend. But the Bible says the way of the sinner, the life of the sinner, that way is hard. And yes, the, the, the Christian life has its challenges as well. Jesus lets us know that there is a narrow path. There's definitely, you know, the idea of, of the Christian life requirements and the abstaining from the works of the flesh that we read about in Galatians chapter 5. There's no doubt that there are some saints throughout the world and over church history that have faced persecution and they've suffered as Jesus said we might. As Paul would tell young Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, that we must endure. But Jesus also said in Matthew chapter 11, that as his followers we can yoke up with him. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus looks at a sinner and says, hasn't it been hard? And that could be a reference to just the lifestyle that Saul was living, the emptiness of soul, the sleepless nights because he wasn't right with God. It could refer to each time God was trying to get his attention and he saw faith on display and it was hard to turn his, to, to, to see that because it was God's way of cracking through that hard heart. It's been hard for you to kick against the goats. But somewhere, this, this, this real conviction turns into real conversion where he's trembling and astonished and says, Lord, what do you want me to do? The contact of our God. The, the conviction of our God. The conversion that's taking place here of our God. In Philippians 3, verse 4, Paul again summarizing this. And he talks about, if anyone else has a mind to be confident in the flesh, I more so. And he gives this whole pedigree thing there, Hebrew of Hebrews and all that, and concerning zeal, persecuting the church, you know, keeping the law, I'm blameless. But then he says about like this happening life that he supposedly had, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss 
for the sake of Christ? More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count all of that as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which comes from the law, but now that which comes by faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes by God, by putting faith in him. And he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He would say in 1 Timothy 1, 13-17, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent or violent man, yet I was shown mercy. I was mercied. I deserve the judgment of God. That's not what I got. Then later on in that same chapter, you'd say, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That's why this whole topic of grace, if I had, I don't have any more minutes, but if I had like another hour, I could just break down this, this idea of grace. We're meeting with a bunch of men's groups this last week, and, and in one of them, we were, we were just talking about the, the, the grace of God and, and how the unmerited favor of God pursues us as we're pursuing him and, and just how it works out in winning over our hearts. And one of the guys said something. I just thought it was humorous, but it was profound. And I don't know if he's here, but he'll, he'll be like, that's mine. I'm sticking to that. But he said when he was in high school, at younger years of high school, he would be walking and these two girls would come by in a car all the time, honk, 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 wave to him. And he, he just thought that the driver was so cute. And then wherever he went, you know, I'm telling the story hopefully as accurate as he did, they just kept finding him. They'd see him on the campus and walk by and hi, hi, hi. And he thought, man, this, I got a crush on the driver of this car. I'm going to get to know her, got to know her, come to find out their sisters and and as it would turn out, I, I worked up enough courage to ask her one year to this, this prom. And so I go to her door all slicked out, and I knock on the door, and I'm all nervous. And I ask her, will you like to go to the prom with me? And she says, oh, how cute. And he goes, I was about 12 inches tall after she said that. But the next week, she found me at school. And she said, you want to know why we keep finding you? You want to know why we keep honking and getting your attention and offering you rides and all of that? And he's like, why? Because my younger sister adores you. She's crazy over you. She won't stop talking about you. She just has to find you. She drives me crazy telling me to go here and there and find you. And, and, and this is what he said. He said, I never even noticed her until I realized she wanted me. Until I recognized what she thought of me. That she was pursuing me. And what a powerful picture of what has happened here on the Damascus Road. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith. He gave me the faith and love which are in him. Paul would later write in Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, God's grace abounded all the more. William Barclay says, conversion involves two things. Turning from something and turning to something. 
C.S. Lewis said, every story of conversion is the story of a blessed defeat. Saul's religion, his pride, his hatred, all of that had to be defeated. And the risen Savior won another battle. It's no longer what will the elders and the high priest have me to do. Now it's, Lord, what do you want me to do? From a persecutor of the gospel, persecuting those that believe the gospel, were changed by the gospel, this guy's been converted and will become a proclaimer of the gospel. His conversion had altered his will. He was ready to be governed by Christ. And that's what grace does. You have Saul that was governed by the law and governed by Judaism, religion. Now governed by Christ. Divine contact, conviction, conversion, and now arise, go into the city, and I'm going to tell you what you must do. What follows this is consecration. His life is about to be set apart, is now set apart unto God. And Saul arose from the ground. We'll close with this verse. In verses 8 and 9. And when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Divine contact. Conviction. Conversion. Consecration. And now three days of communing with the Lord. What was that like? Stopped in his tracks. Everything he was trained to do, everything that his life was made up to do, came to a halt. And there he was, just fasting. The image that he last saw is what he would see for the next three days. There was a writer, I forgot to write his name down, I'm so sorry, but whoever this is, he gets credit. He says, this part of Saul's conversion is like the process of photography. The film is kept in darkness until the shutter opens, light pours in, and whatever is seen in the light is imprinted now on the film, then taken into a dark room and placed in chemicals to saturate until it is fully developed. And that image is now impressed upon that bromine paper. So too with Saul. Before his conversion, he was in spiritual darkness. But on the road to Damascus, the shutter had opened up and the light got in, and the impression was fixed. Then he was returned to darkness once again through physical blindness in order for the image of Jesus alone to be permanently imprinted upon his heart and developed within his life. Powerful words. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of salvation. Thank you for conversion that makes up, I would believe, a greater part of this room. Thank you for those that have yet to be saved, those that have yet to be converted. Thank you for the opportunity of their hearing the gospel and 
hearing the, the steps, the process of what takes place when you transform a life, when you convert. And if you're here or you're online or you'll be listening to this study down the road on an app or whatever, and you have got to this point and you would say, I would like to be converted. I would like to be saved. I would like what happened to Saul to happen to me. Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. For with confession... We make this confession with our mouth and with the heart one believes unto salvation. And what does that mean? It means that we come to God on his terms. He's initiated this amazing relationship in giving us his son. He has left his spirit on this earth to convict us and to draw us to himself. He has sought you out. He has worked and orchestrated the affairs of your life, like in the life of Saul, the life of, of Philip, to where you find yourself sitting where you are, hearing what you are hearing right now. And he has done that sovereignly because he loves you. Now it's your opportunity. It's your choice there were years and months and days and hours where Saul rejected Jesus. But there would be a day, and maybe this is your day, where like Saul, you will stop rejecting him and you will simply accept him. And if you have felt and you sense that you are wrong before God, that's a good thing. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is, it is great that you would come to that place of conviction, trembling before your God, like, I'm wrong and I'm so sorry. Please fix this. And that's okay. But tell God that. Say, God, I, I'm wrong. I've been wrong about Jesus. And I'm so sorry. Confess to him you're a sinner. And then I want, you to, I want you to talk to Jesus. He's listening. And just tell him, I, I believe, Jesus, I believe that you are God. I believe that you died on that cross for me. I believe that you rose from the grave three days later, that you're alive. And just invite him in, say, come into my life. Forgive me. Remove my sin. Fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your love. Love for you. Love for the body of Christ. Love for your word. Love for the lost. And if you've prayed that simple prayer to him, you've meant it. Thank him for saving you. Amazing grace. Indeed, how sweet the sound that saved maybe more wretches than who walked into this room. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace. We love you. Can't wait to see you. And until we do, may we become more and more convinced this world is not our home. May we be looking up. And may we help those that you bring into our life know you and walk with you. Give us that heart, your heart. Give us those opportunities, your opportunities. And may we be faithful to live out the gospel and to share the gospel in a world where the harvest is definitely plentiful. In Jesus, we pray this all in your name. Amen. And amen. Let's all stand. We'll sing one more song together and then uh, we're going to be dismissed. And we're, we've, we've got some of our leaders that are going to come forward here during this song if you need prayer.
or afterwards for anything, especially if you did accept the Lord this morning, come up and tell them and love to talk to you about that and give you a Bible and whatever it might be.